You've arrived here at a critical moment. Yes, I can feel it too. I feel good. I feel joy in helping him. I've heard you're rather famous on Earth. I'm flattered that my reputation has preceded me. You know how these buried treasure tales have been going through the islands all these years? I mean, what are you advertising? Is it for sale or is it free? Truth. And so... Hello, everyone. Uh, when I started, started out in London advertising 30 years ago, uh, John Hegarty was already a titan of the industry. Bartle Bogle Hegarty, better known as BBH around the world, with the irritating Manchester United of the London industry, they'd win everything. Every year, a new 60s Levi's ad would come out and be roundly slagged by the creators as not being nearly as good as its predecessors. A month later, the song will be top of the charts all over the world, however obscure it might have been once, and the ad would win every gong going. Uh, BBH, other famous clients over the years, the likes of Audi, Johnny Walker, and Lynx. Uh, BBH, still one of the most respected names in the world of advertising, and John Hegarty, one of the most revered names, uh, such that he was knighted, I said here 20 years ago, it's not about 13, 2007. Uh, so John and I have a lot in common, having spent several minutes in a lift together in Cannes 10 years ago, which I suspect John probably doesn't remember. Um, <laughs> Nothing untoward happened before I say Paul. The ship's passing the night. Uh, based on that, I felt there was a strong enough relationship to ask him on the podcast, and it being the lockdown and everything, he couldn't think of a reason not to. Um, and the other thing that we have in common, for those who wonder why John is on the New Zealand Advertising Podcast, I should point out that every year John comes, I think, John comes to New Zealand and has some great fishing tips for us. It's 7am uh, in Auckland, I think 8pm in London. Um, so, John, are you still coming to New Zealand every year? Certainly do. In fact, we, uh, we got back on uh, the 1st of March, just yeah. before, you know, the whole kind of terrible things started happening with lockdowns and everything else. And um, we had a wonderful time there. So we, we basically, because my wife is uh, a Kiwi, Philippa, and uh, we come down every year, see her, her family. Uh, so we go to Christchurch and then uh, up to Auckland to see some friends and then up to the Bay of Islands to see some other friends. And we have a little uh, batch, as you call it. We call it a sort of um, a beach house uh, up there, yeah. which we chill out in. And it's absolutely wonderful. I love going there in, um, I mean, I love going there, but I mean, we, we go in February, which of course, yeah. if those who know the Northern Hemisphere, February is the shittiest month of the year. Instead of, so I, I always say, instead of wishing it away, go away. So yeah. um, I always describe it as a bit like Tuesday. You know, you know Tuesday, it's that day in the week when, oh, God, you know, let's get this over with and, you know, we can get to the weekend. Well, that's what February is like, except there are 28 of them in a row. And sometimes 29. So yeah. going down to New Zealand is a, a true, true pleasure. So you stay in the, you stay in the Bay of Islands uh, near Russell? Uh, no, actually north of Kerry Kerry. Oh, okay, right. So we fly, fly into Kerry Kerry, and then we, we're technically, actually, to be honest with you, we're just outside the Bay of Islands. But as I look right. out into the, uh, into the ocean, I see lots of islands, and it looks like the Bay of Islands to me. So I call it, I call it the Bay of Islands. A sort of a bit of creative license there, really. I think that, that's close enough. And do you get, uh, get recognised up there? Do any old um, ad people come up and go point at you strangely? I, I have had it occasionally, and, and um, I, I once had somebody who looked at me in a very peculiar fashion, and, mm. and they said to me, uh, excuse me, are you John Hegarty? And I said, oh, no, 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 you're getting me, that's my brother. Um, he lives in London, and I'm over here in New Zealand. So they, they sort of look at me in a very quizzical way and then wander off. So I, I, yeah. I, but you know, it's lovely being away. I love it. And do you go fishing when you're up there? No, no, I don't know where you got the fishing story from because I, I've never actually been fishing in my life, Paul. So, <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> I do, I do play. Um, I, when I was a kid, I used to to make money. I used to go caddying on golf courses, obviously. Yeah. And um, I realised at the age of about ten and a half, if you could play the game you could earn more money and give tips to people you were caddying with. So I lived on a golf course until I was about 15. And um, so I play now about once a year. That's about as much as I can take. And I play when I'm up there at a most beautiful golf course called Cowrie Cliffs, which is utterly, utterly stunning. And I, I, I always say to anybody, if you hate golf, 
which I can understand, you know, I'm going to understand. Just come with me, come onto Cowrie Cliffs, stand there, look out, and you'd go, actually, I think I get it now. It's the most beautiful golf course in the world. So I play there once a year. Well, this is something else that we that we have in common, John, and that, that is the only golf course, Cowrie Cliffs, that I've played on in New Zealand. Uh, I played on a... Play, Played with some guys from work. Uh, I used to play really, really badly in the UK. I came over and um, we got invited up and, and I played there and I had to give up after 13 holes because I'd run out of balls. Because it, it's beautiful, but it's not an easy course. It's not an easy course and it's very expensive on golf balls. But it is utterly stunning and you get this vista. You get, I mean, that's what's beautiful, I think, about New Zealand. You get these, this scale of vista, which you don't get here in the UK. I mean, you know, it's not, don't compare. Comparison is odious. But what I love about, say, a place like that is you look out and, and you almost see like for a hundred miles. And therefore you get these wonderful weather patterns and clouds and a vista. And it is just utterly stunning. So when are you going to, when are you going to retire down here? Never. <laughs> One never retire, never, yeah. ever retire. Yeah. Uh, I kind of think that's a concept of the, uh, the industrial age. The, you know, the concept of retirement was created then. And uh, we're no longer in the industrial age. We're, we're long past that. I mean, uh, I love doing lots of different things. I love, you know, I have a vineyard in France, which Philippa and I constantly worry over about, you know, it's one thing to one thing to, to make wine. It's another thing to sell it. Um, yeah. But we, Is it a money we pit? Have, sorry? Is it a money pit? Does it lose money? <laughs> the tax write-off? Yeah, absolutely. That's it. You've got it in one. Um, but, yeah. you know, I could be sort of sailing around in a yacht and the Côte d'Azur or something like that, wasting money that way. But I love yeah. the idea of doing something that is totally different to what I did in terms of advertising. Advertising is very ephemeral. You, you know, what you do, you create something and then, you know, next day it's gone. Whereas with the wine industry, you're making something, you lay it down, and it takes a long time. And um, it's just interesting, you know, working. I always say I have God as one of my partners. And um, the trouble is he doesn't answer emails and he doesn't, you know, it actually doesn't do his job. I and mean, that's one of the things that really pisses me off. I'm thinking of firing him, actually, because, you know, all that, you know, bullshit he gave us about I made the world in six days and took the seventh off. The man's an outrageous liar. We know that's a lie. I've seen him come down to the vineyard and see what he does. So um, you have to kind of work in a different way. But I, I love it. I enjoy learning about agriculture and about farming, and which is we're, we're essentially farmers. You know, we're, we grow grapes. That's the only difference. But we farm not only organically but biodynamically, which for those who know is a kind of way of farming which is in total harmony with nature. And uh, I think it shows in the wine. But you learn about, you know, the land and why things do what they do and how they work. And I love that. Whereabouts in France, is it? It's um, just outside Carcassonne. So right. if I say to people, actually, technically, it's the south of France, um, they all think, I mean, the Côte d'Azur or Nice, or which actually is yeah. southeast France. But So it's, it's, it's actually directly in the south of France, just outside Carcassonne. Very beautiful part of France. You're listening to Truth and Soul. 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 Um, uh, so, if I could go back, yeah. Why did you, why did you start in advertising? Because you went to the London, is it London School of Printing? London College of Printing. It was College London Printing. School of Printing, actually. Yeah, sorry, actually, London School of Printing. It then gained the the LCP. Um, I I went to um, art school. I wanted to be a painter. I thought I thought I was going to be a genius painter. Um, and I realized when I, I loved ideas, I always loved playing around with ideas. And uh, I sort of rapidly was made, was made aware that I was not going to be the next Picasso. So, which comes as a bit of a blow. Um, but yeah. I had a wonderful teacher there, who Peter Green, who said to me, John, you know, you love ideas and that. Why don't you study graphic design? But, you know, don't do it here at Hornsey, which is where I was at. He said, go and do it at the London, London School of Printing, which I did. And they had a very good graphic design department. And whilst I was there, and I, it was very interesting, actually, because I love design. But, you know, I, I was in amongst people who were talking about shades of blue and, you know, should it be Caslon or Garamond? And, and uh, I love all those things. I love typography. But 
I kept saying, yeah, but what's the idea? And they, they, yeah. these people kind of look at me in a kind of strange way. What do you mean idea? What's that? And I said, well, you know, and it was odd, really. And, and it was whilst I was there that I met the, the brilliant genius John Gillard, who was a lecturer there, who showed me all the work coming out of New York at that time with Dordain Birnbeck and Papa Koenig Lewis and all those Wells Rich Green, all those wonderful agencies that emerged out of America, Carl Alley and people like that. And, you know, I suddenly looked at it and I thought, God, this is what I want to do. It was smart, intelligent, it was witty, clever, but it was also inclusive. And I suddenly, it really was, Paul, like a light bulb going on in a darkened room. I bang, I thought, that's what I want to do. And uh, so I switched whilst I was there at the LCP from doing graphic design to sort of pursuing an advertising portfolio. Of course, that time, you know, uh, you know, advertising was a completely dirty word. <clears throat> Suddenly, you know, we were full of graphic designers who really wanted to be painters, you know, and I used to keep pointing out that if you were doing packaging design, which they all, you know, talked about, that was the same thing as selling, you know, the pack was there to sell the product. They never quite saw it like that. So I, I developed a, an advertising portfolio there and, um, and then, you know, the rest is history, as they say. So uh, just for uh, New Zealand listeners, John Gillard went on to run the School of Communication Arts in London, which is where I went. Yes, where the I SCA. Was, SCA, and Michael Sullivan went. And we currently have the Media Design School down in New Zealand, uh, which, is run, which is run along the same lines and, and has taken uh, the, the cues from the SCA. Uh, I don't think the SCA exists anymore. The, the school still goes. Yeah, yeah, still runs. Oh, right, good. I go every year and give a lecture. Um, which is wonderful. So it's absolutely fantastic. So, you know, John's kind of, you know, contribution to the industry is 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 still there and still turning out wonderful students, which is great. Wonderful students and me. Uh, and you. <laughs> um, how hard was it in those days to get a, to get a job? So you go around agencies with your portfolio. How tricky was it to get in? Well, actually. You know, people aren't going to want to hear this, but it was actually quite easy. Um, yeah. What was difficult was going, getting into an agency that wanted to do great work. That was difficult. Yeah. And, you know, people talk about the difference between then and now. And we talk about creativity now and the acceptance of creativity. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a fundamental part of the communications industry. But back in, you know, the mid-60s and when I came into the industry, creativity was almost like a dirty word. You know, you, yeah. you, you had this great expression which people used to put you down and they called it soft sell and hard sell. And soft sell was yeah. that creative stuff and hard sell was that really hard, this is what we call advertising. And, you know, the agencies like Jay Water, Tom, all the big, you know, agencies were doing hard sell and this soft sell creative stuff was namby pamby and who wanted that and it didn't work and all that stuff coming out of new york was self-indulgent rubbish and, and of course we so yes it was easy getting a, a job but it was very difficult getting into a good agency and getting work sold there wasn't the acceptance there from clients that this thing called creativity was a fundamental part of the, the advertising process. And that was the big difference. I think that debate still goes on. It, 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 still, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, there's no question today that, 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 for instance, certainly here, if you do a survey amongst clients, they would put creativity very, very high uh, on the list of requirements. Of course, you then debate what you mean by creativity. <laughs> That's another debate, of course. But, yeah. even, but at least that is on the kind of, on the agenda, whereas, you know, when I came into the industry, it, it largely wasn't. You know, I always say that, in my view, my, my opinion, that there were two great advertising agencies in the world. Uh, the first was Dordain Burnback because they invented modern advertising, advertising as we know it. That legacy has lived on. And the other is Colin Dickinson Pierce here in London. They no longer exist. But CDP took creativity to the masses, and that was their contribution. So in the late 60s, early 70s, they were pioneering great creative work and work that people talked about, work that people admired. And all of a sudden, what happened is 
people began to talk about what they were creating. You know, the public, they really yes. liked it. They thought those Hovis ads were absolutely great. They thought Heineken was very funny. They thought that, you know, the work they were doing for other accounts, whatever they were, Hamlet cigars, admittedly smoking, that, were really, really funny. And all of a sudden, people and agencies and clients began to go, well, why aren't they talking about my ads? You know, they're not talking about my ads. And, and that pressure to kind of suddenly do work that had a creative element to it, that was entertaining, was involving and captured people's imagination became the norm. And that was thanks, really, to Colin Dickinson Pierce, who pioneered that. As I say, they took it to the masses. And, and in particular, the the credit director at that time, uh, Colin... Colin Millwood. He, I guess, because uh, I grew up with that. that my, my father used to work in advertising back in the 60s. And so I was aware of what was going on. I used to watch, watch all those ads. And... Yeah. The influence that Colin Millwood had on UK advertising was huge, and yet he's largely forgotten. Yeah, it's one of the great tragedies of that. And, and I think it's, I mean, it's because his name wasn't in the, in the, uh, in the title, so to speak. He, yeah. He's largely forgotten. And I, and I think it is a, I mean, it's one of the things about the industry that you can be critical of, which is it, it, it remembers people very quickly and forgets them very quickly. And I think, um, you know, when we were young, creative guys, you know, advancing and going up in the industry, we were fighting our way in and getting noticed. And uh, But it soon forgets you. And I think that's you just have to accept it. That's the way it is. I think there are enough people around and when people write the history of advertising, which somebody should do, that, you know, people like Colin Millwood will, will get, you know, the chapter they deserve. Yes. But I think it's one of the interesting things about what we do. It's the upside and the downside of it. One of the things I love about advertising is, is how it's sort of, it, it's, it's literally onto the next thing, the next thing, what's next, what's next, what's next. Yeah. And, it, and it, it takes very little time to reflect. Now, that can be great, and I love that side of it. But the danger, if you accelerate that too much, like today, I think, we've forgotten the work that was done yesterday and the day before and the year before and the decade before. And, you know, I think we must be probably the only creative industry that I can name where people don't know the kind of greats that helped make the industry what it was today. You know, if you go into fashion, people will talk about Coco Chanel, they'll talk about Yves Saint Laurent, they'll talk about the great people who made fashion what it is. Um, Eve said, you know, they'll, they'll talk about those people. The architecture, architects will talk about, you know, the great architects, Frank Lloyd Wright. They'll talk about Mies van der Rohe. But, you know, you come into advertising and, and here you are and, and people don't know who Paul Colin Millwood is. And he was one of the greats. They, they hardly remember, you know, David Abbott. They hardly remember, you know, uh, a, a, a huge number of people that made an enormous contribution and whose work you can see um, that is actually fundamentally important to what you're doing today and you could learn from. My point is not that I want to do work like that, just as if I was an architect, I wouldn't like to design buildings like Frank Lloyd Wright, but I would learn from Frank Lloyd Wright. I'd understand what he was doing when he was doing it and what he could teach me. And I, and I think, you know, you take someone like John Webster, I mean, most people won't even know who John Webster is, and he was truly one of the great creators in the advertising industry, Bozeman Simi Pollitt. Again, his name wasn't above the door. And people have largely forgotten him. They'll know his work. Uh, they'll know about, you know, the Martians for Smashing. But it's a great shame, I think, for our industry that we don't have this link with yesterday uh, and understand it. Not that you want to replicate that work, but you, you learn from it. You know, uh, you know, when I went to art school, when I was at art school, you were, you were told, go and look at the work of Rubens, go and look at the work of the great masters, not that you were going to paint like them, but you'd learn something from them. And I think that is a great tragedy. Well, ho hopefully through this podcast, uh, some, some of that will um, keep up. I, I certainly, I worked for, for DDB New Zealand for five or six years, and I was very proud of coming from um, 
being at an agency with uh, Burnback's name over the door. I think most um, most young creatives in New Zealand, pro- probably through uh, through the school, have uh, heard of Burnback. Maybe not maybe not Colin Millwood, but maybe after this. Um, yeah, I think Burnback's got a, a, a name, but I think so many people that you know followed him or you know came out of that time that have wonderful work that you could learn from and you could you could you know in, improve your craft not that you want to do work like them but you could improve the craft of what you do and i think you know I'm, I'm a bit boring sometimes in talking about craft but it is fundamentally important and and craft changes you know technology changes craft um but it's still needed you know i i i kind of go we're all artists, but some of us shouldn't exhibit. And it, and it's, you know, we're all creative, but, you know, we shouldn't, you know, some people really shouldn't be doing it. But, you know, the trouble today is everybody's got a camera in their iPhone and they think they're a photographer. Yeah, the democratisation of creativity, I think they called it. Everyone's an artist now. So at that, at that time, I guess, in the, maybe in, in the UK, 70s, 80s, 90s, Advertising was seen, television advertising was, was, as you say, was liked by a large proportion of the population. And I have seen research that says that people preferred the ads to the programs often. They certainly had higher production values. And that has completely fallen away and it doesn't happen anymore. And, and the standard of uh, film, television advertising has got worse, or, or TV programs have got better. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, there's no, there's absolutely empirical evidence to show that's the case. I mean, there is a um, TGI um, research that's done each year, which actually tracks people's like of advertising, and it has consistently gone down since about 19, you know, started declining in the mid 90s, and it's gone down ever since. I think that, that coincided with my career. <laughs> well, don't worry about that, Paul. Your, your chance of getting back again. But, yeah. you know, I think it, it, at one point it was that, you know, people liked having it. It was something like 40% of people, whereas today it's now less than 10%. I mean, the point about that, I think, isn't you could argue, well, what does that matter? But I, I'm not sure how you make an industry more successful if people think the product you're making is worse. I'm not sure if you were going to go into pizza production if you decided to make a worse pizza and believe that that was a way of selling more pizzas. I'm not sure what business book would have that as an example of great marketing and great production, whereas our industry never addresses that question. There is no, there's no, undoubtedly now people avoid, you know, look to avoid the advertising. I mean, there was a time, as, I, as you quite rightly say, Paul, when people actually enjoyed it and talked about the ads and newspapers would write about them and the music we used would get into the charts and the people who appeared in them would say, oh, I want to be in an ad and it's great. And we've lost that really. And I think um, it's a shame for the, the value of our industry. I'm not sure, as I say, if you want an industry to be successful, you've got to get people to like it, um, which is what we do supposedly for brands. You know, we're getting people to like a brand. Because you, you buy things off people you like. You don't buy things off people you don't like. But it's a, it's a sadness. But you know, somebody has to change that. Can I ask you about um, awards, John? Because a, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, two or three years ago at Cannes, somebody interviewed you and they said, have you seen any of the work this year at the Palais? And you said, no, I just got here, but most of it is scam anyway, so I can't be asked. So they wrote that as asked. <laughs> But I got it as asked. Um, what do you mean by that? Most of the print work is scanned. You can tell it. You can see it a mile away. Now, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I um, retweeted it. And it's by far and away the most popular tweet I've ever done in my life. How did this come about? Well, I think it's a long, yeah, it's, it's, it's well, first of all, I'm proud that, you know, my quote has given you a great tweet. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I think it's, um, well, you know, it's, in a way, it's, it's, 
it's part of our own, it, it, the curse of our own success. I mean, we set up award schemes. I mean, DNAD was set up to promote creativity and to promote creative people. And all it's, it's a charity and all its money goes back into education. So it was set up in, with very, very fine ideals at a time when it was hard getting people to buy creativity. You've got to remember that, go back to that 60s again. You had that era when we were trying to get people to realize the importance of creativity. Then gradually it became uh, more recognized, awards proliferated, more people entered awards. And then I think the big, the big agencies got involved and they suddenly realized in the 70s and into the 80s that this creativity stuff um, that was done by the long hairs, as they were called, was really working and that maybe they should be doing it. Uh, and then, of course, they realized if they won some awards that, you know, it would promote their kind of um, uh, PR and their, their, their persona. So it, in a way, it all evolved out of that. And gradually, people started realizing that they could do some scam work that scam work could win them awards. Nobody really asked the question. Uh, and it really looked good on their um, company shareholders' report, and it worked well for the creative people because it promoted their, their, their well-being and their, their salaries. And I think, you know, it's like, it's like drugs in, in sport. You know, you take a little bit and you perform better, and then, of course, you perform a little bit better because you take a little bit more. But gradually, it eats the industry. Uh, and I think this is what's happened with scam um, in our industry. I mean, I just think it's appalling. I mean, you go to, I've said it, I'm, I've given up saying it. You walk into the, um, the Palais and you look at the ads and, and I'm looking at somebody's fucking personal portfolio and I go, well, that's fine. But if that's what you wanted me to do, why didn't you tell me? I mean, I went to an award scheme. I was asked to go to a, a big award scheme in, judge an award scheme in Singapore some 15 years ago, maybe not as long ago as that. And um, I've forgotten which one it was. It was the big one that runs in uh, Asia. Yeah. And I, I, I was looking at the work and, and, you know, we were all there, all the judges. And, and I, I see this campaign really very beautifully art-directed for a museum um, about the Japanese invasion of um, Singapore. It was yeah, beautifully art-directed. Changi and... and uh, and I, and I said, this is really lovely. And I said, where is this museum? And, you know, I looked on the ad to see, you know, like the Royal Academy, you know, Piccadilly or whatever, you know. Uh, and there was sort of, you know, a bit of shuffling and people looking around. And, and, and I said, sorry, no, I, you, know, I, you know, I've seen the ad and I'd like to go. Where is it? It looks, sounds, looks. And, well, um, there was more sort of embarrassed silences. And, it turned out the work was completely scam. Everybody in that room knew it. Everybody knew that it was scam. Everybody knew it didn't run. And yet here I was being asked, I flew over all the way from the UK to be uh, part of this jury. And I said to them at the time, I said, look, I haven't flown 5,000 miles to come and judge somebody's personal portfolio. If you want me to do that, why didn't you say so? I've come here to judge work, work that ran, work that had an effect, work that contributed to a client's success. That's what I've come to judge. And it, it was just embarrassing, Paul. It was, you know, but it hadn't changed. And I, yeah. and I said, you know, we all, you know, the point about this is that advertising got better because we showed that creativity was better. We showed that brands and companies that used it did better. And that way, we encouraged more creativity and we encouraged more people to be creative. If you go, I'm just going to invent a, a, a product or do a scam ad, it benefits nobody. It doesn't benefit anybody. So that's why I get very irate about it, because you're undermining the legacy of what the Burnbacks and the Colin Millwoods and the, and, the, and the John Websters and all those brilliant people gave us. They did great work on clients that people saw, not somebody another creative team or an awards jury in Cannes or wherever it might have been. And I think it's, you know, so we have ourselves to blame for that. We don't call it out enough. It's yes. shocking. I think it's absolutely shocking. Uh, yeah, I uh, we violently agree on that. I've um, not been thrown off awards juries, but I made myself very unpopular by continually calling out. Um, <laughs> well, you're right um, to. You're right to. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm pleased you have. But... but uh, uh, so I think that 
a large part of the reason is, say you're a, you're a team, you're a junior middleweight team in an agency, and you, you do an ad for um, yogurt and a campaign for yogurt. And that campaign goes on to win a Grand Prix at Cannes. Uh, but the product is delisted from the supermarket because nobody's buying it. Did that team do a good job? Well, uh, you know, advertising is just part of the process. You know, it, it, I don't formulate the product. I don't, I'm not in charge of the pricing. I'm not in charge of the distribution. They didn't ask me how to package it. They didn't, you know, make sure that it, 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 was marketed in the correct way of course you know you're only part of that process and all parts of the engine have to work together to create success we completely understand that i i do think advertising is an important part of that process but it's not the only part um yeah you know i always i always say that you know i was often i'd be in meetings with clients in in my career in advertising and you know, I'd be selling the work that I was doing or that the agency was doing and then to sort of show interest, not to sort of say, well, I've done my bit, I'm leaving. You'd stay around when they would talk about, you know, what the market was doing and how sales were going in the northeast or what was happening in the southwest or they hadn't got shelf distribution in whatever supermarket. And, and they'd all kind of talk about the marketing. And so often I'd be sitting there saying to myself, you haven't thought about making a better product as a, as a sort of concept. But that wasn't my, you know, I, my, I often, well, I occasionally said that and often get thrown out of the room. But, you know, that my, I was doing my job. You know, I expected other people to do their job. So, yes, you are going to get, you know, brilliant ads that actually, you know, I mean, we all know that the famous story about, Fiat and hand-built by robots uh, for yeah. the launch of the Fiat Strada, an absolutely brilliant ad, and it got everybody to go out and, well, everybody, a large number of people to go out and try the car. Of course, the car was complete crap, and, and it collapsed. I mean, that was a case of where great advertising, you know, undermined a bad product even faster because more people found out very quickly. But, you know, you, it, it, it's, it's the business we're in, you know. You're a salesman. So, you 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 kind of you know you're selling not a great product. You're doing your best with it, but you've been given the product. You didn't make it. So, um, Giles, uh, going back to Kane, you've been um, you've been on the Titanium jury a couple of times, maybe. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Now that that um, to everyone that that's the big jury at Can. That's where you get all the the, the big uh, heavy breathers from around the world. <laughs> Uh, all, all stuck together in a room. Who misbehaves? Well, actually, those? funny enough, the titanium jury is actually one of the best. I've done it twice. Um, I was on it once, and then I was asked to chair it. And um, uh, it, it is actually the nicest jury because it's lots of very grown-up people. They've kind of, they, they've really got nothing to prove. You can have an open and honest conversation with them. And you're looking at work that doesn't easily fit into lots of other categories. So you're judging, you know, very interesting stuff. I mean, there isn't a, a question now whether it should go on and whether its purpose has, it's gone past its purpose. It was originally, it was originated by Dan White who decided he was sitting on a jury and said, look, there's lots of work here which doesn't fit into any of the categories. Why don't you set up a titanium category that this work could go into? But it, it, I, I actually enjoyed it. I, I really um, thought it was a very interesting jury to sit on because you were looking at basically ideas and it wasn't about the typeface or it wasn't about you know, how it was shot. It was essentially the idea. But, you know, the, the, and you've got some great things coming through that. So I enjoyed that one. The worst, the worst jury to be on is the film jury. That is yeah. the worst jury on. And, and I, I once described it when I was chair of that jury in 13 as, as walking around with two bucket loads of nitroglycerin. And at one moment, the whole lot was going to go up. And the Brazilian juror on that occasion was a very heavy smoker and, Every 20 minutes, he had to go out and have a cigarette. And if he didn't, he'd get very agitated and start sort of, you know, walking out of juries. And, and it was awful. It was an awful experience. And I just thought, 
I'm not, I'm not being paid to do this. <laughs> this is just deeply unpleasant. But that was, that was a fairly horrible jury, the film jury. So my advice to anybody is don't do it. Stay well yeah. away. Um, the, as I recall, the Titanium jury was set up because the BMW films were entered. Uh, That's uh, right, yeah. yeah in, in, I don't know when that was, 2000, 2001. So the, the BMW films, for, in case people haven't seen them, they were about, I don't know, seven minutes long. Beautifully shot, uh, ridiculously high production values. Um, Star Clive Owen, I think a Guy Ritchie shot one. I think Madonna was maybe in one. And, and everybody went, that is amazing. That is the, the future of the industry to, to do longer form, uh, feature film production values, really entertain the audience and get them sucked in never happened yeah they, they, they made yeah. they made those films. i mean the bmw gave up that that form of advertising yeah. and, it, and never it never continued as a way unfortunately probably as a way of selling a product well I, I i'm not sure i i i sort of i like them i thought they were brilliantly shot i didn't think that's what advertising was i mean i'm in that sense i'm you know there were a lot of advertising people who want to be filmmakers. I loved advertising. I loved what it did. I loved doing it in an interesting way. I loved doing it by engaging people. And really, you know, why, why did I need longer than 60 seconds to kind of engage, entertain, do something brilliant? And I thought our genius was that we could take a 60-second spot, okay, 90 if you want to be generous, and create something truly memorable, truly uh, uh, motivating, really kind of dramatic and with all kinds of production values, why would I want to now take five minutes to do that? I thought it was a cul-de-sac, personally, and I think in the end I was right. It was a cul-de-sac, because obviously if it was that successful, why why didn't BMW go on doing it? I mean, they were brilliant, don't get me wrong, but they were brilliantly wrong. And I, and I think there is a sort of a problem that we have, which is I think our genius is to take very complicated messages and reduce them down to simple, powerful pieces of communication. And I think that's a real skill. You know, and I always sort of play that game of, you know, you're a, a Martian, you've come down to earth and somebody's trying to explain everything to you and somebody says well you know there's too much stuff and there's not enough time and we can't do anything and the martian goes what's that advertising stuff over there and somebody goes well that's where they take very complicated messages and reduce them down to 30 60 seconds and the martian would go well that's brilliant wasn't that the answer instead of that we've gone the other way we've made it longer we've made it more complicated and I, in the end, you know, I, I sort of go, I'd much, ra- much rather watch Game of Thrones than I'd watch, you know, BMW trying to make a film. BMW make cars. Guys, you make very good cars. You don't make great movies. Game of Thrones, don't make cars. They make series. You know, stick to what you're good at doing. This arrogance that somehow you can do what somebody else does is, I yeah. think, a nonsense. I really do. I, and I think it's a... Uh, you know, uh, an absurdity that we've been sucked into, but somehow it's been done by people who don't love advertising. Who want to, ma- want to make films. They want to make films. Fine. That's great. I mean, Ridley Scott went off and did that. Alan Parker went off and did that. Hugh Hudson, they went off and did that. Go and do it. Please, you know, love it. I mean, absolutely great. But remember what this is, you know, and the genius of this and why it's so great. And, and, Again, you know, I go back to we've kind of, in a way, I don't want to sound like some silly old fart, which I probably am, actually. (laughs) But I I do think, you know, the value of what you, recognise the value of what you do and do it brilliantly. Uh, And that's, you know, that's where our future should lie. And I'm, I'm always confident that, you know, I've always said, you know, gravity will out, that the reality is people like great ads. You know, people say to me, oh, nobody likes the ads. And I say, I don't like the ads and I work in the industry. Why should anybody else? They're shit. You know, they're absolute crap. But if people make good ads, you know, it's amazing how people watch them. It's always a thing here now at the uh, 
Christmas, people talk about the big stores and the ads they're going to do and the ads they're going to make. Who's going to make the best one? And all of a sudden, it becomes a national conversation. The nation talks about it. Well, that not that a bit of a kind of an example of what we should be doing for more things? So, it, 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 you know, it still happens, but it doesn't happen enough. You're listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. So, John, you talked about the, uh, I think, uh, the, the first great revolution when Burnback came along and we went from the hard sell to what was called then the soft sell. And as an industry, we made the best use of 30, 60 seconds on television. Uh, print and billboard executions went on to make the, the best of those media. The second creative revolution, I presume, would be to make the most of the digital world, which I don't think as a creative industry we are doing currently. I don't know what the answer is, but it, it's not yeah. what's happening. Well, I, I think that, first of all, there's, there is a debate about how we should use digital. Uh, you know, I always, uh, and I've said this before, I, I think I sort of talk about there's a creative deficit at the moment. And, um, and you can see it in the world, you can see it in what's going on. And I think whenever there's a great technological revolution, you kind of get a, a creative deficit. So, you know, my example is, you know, when Gutenberg invented movable type, he was the kind of, he was the, the genius of his day. He was Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Gary Page, Serge Ebrin, all rolled into one. And uh, he invented the printing press and movable type. He revolutionized communication. But what did he, what did he print? He only printed, he only, first of all, he only did one book, and that was the Bible. And yeah. so you go, well, he was a technologist. He wasn't a, a creative guy in the sense of we know it. And it took many years for people to realize he'd invented the publishing industry and suddenly books became these amazing kind of repositories of knowledge and engagement and entertainment that we know today. And that happens again and again. So you get, you know, the Lumiere brothers invent the moving camera and, and essentially invent Hollywood, but they didn't realize it. They sort of gave up on it, said, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And they went back to taking their pictures. They were technologists. And, you know, and again, you know, Les Paul invents the electric guitar or he develops it. Um, and he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because he, he wrote any great rock and roll. But, you know, after about 15 years of his, his development, somebody wrote, wrote Rock Around the Clock and the world changed. So creative people kind of, in a way, you get these technological revolutions Creative people stand back going, what the hell do you do with this? Don't know. The technologists take over because they understand the technology. So, you know, Gutenberg was a printer, so he understood printing. Um, and they become the heroes. And eventually, creative people go, actually, I've worked out how to make this interesting. And I think we're waiting for, I, in my view, we're waiting for that to happen. The other thing is, too, everybody has piled into this industry as though it's the answer to everything. And we're beginning, I think we're beginning to realize now that, you know, you still got to broadcast um, as well as narrowcast, which essentially yeah. is what digital is. It's narrowcast and that you've got to do both. And there's a, there's a lot of research here showing the breakdown should be something like 60, 40, 60 on broadcast, 40 on narrowcast. Um, and it varies depending on what industry you're in. But, you know, the, the, the world has been inherited by accountants who kind of want to measure everything. You know, you look at the major companies. I mean, you know, you've got accountants running them and uh, they don't understand things like emotion. They don't understand how a brand builds loyalty and how it builds love. They, don't, they can't measure that. You know, they're, they're very analytical people. So, of course, the digital world comes along and goes, you can measure everything and you put that much in and you get that much out and da -da -da. And somebody very interestingly pointed out the other day that actually digital is more wasteful than almost any other medium you can go in because apart from the fact that it pisses most people off the advertising, so that's not very good for your brand. Hey, I've got a great strategy. Let's piss everybody off because I interfere with what you're doing. But actually the, the click-through rates are dropping alarmingly. So therefore... You know, if your click-through rate is 
something like 0.1% or even lower than that, you know, 99.001% of your budget is being wasted. Whereas if it was in broadcast, more people would be seeing your ad. It may not interest them, but they'd be seeing it, noting it and going, well, it might be interesting. And uh, so I, I think we have to rethink how we evaluate those things. But the, 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 the technology world has captured, you know, people's imagination or it certainly captured their wallet um, in terms of measurement. And we, we live in a land of measurement. And that's that's the world we will come out of at some point in time. We will do because eventually we will. Yeah, it, it seems to me the measurement has answered the question. The famous quote by, I, I think it's attributed to Lord Lever, Lord Lever, Hull, that um, uh, 50% of the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half is now answered in 50% of the money I spend on advertising, but now I do know which half, but it hasn't actually helped him. Yeah, but, it, but you know, I always I always say that's probably one of the world's most stupid quotes about advertising because it Thank completely misunderstood. No, it's not. It's a famous quote and people use it all the time. But yeah. but I always say part of advertising's job is conquest. You know, you don't know where your market is. I don't know. How yeah. do you know that was wasted? You know, I don't know that was wasted. I'm, I'm well known for my use of biblical quotes and things like that because there was a reason for it. But I, I always use the example of kind of, you know, when Christ stood on the mount, it says in the Bible, he stood on the mount and he spoke to the masses. It, it doesn't say in the Bible, you know, Christ stood on the mount and he spoke to 18 to 24-year-olds with a disposable income of 20 shekels a week. He spoke no. to the masses. And that brand is still going today because he understood He's in the conversion business. And, you know, the point about that is, and this is where fame comes in as a value that brands have, you become famous because more people know about you than actually use you. That's what makes you famous. And that adds the value to your brand. And people are forgetting that. And the wonderful quote about that is, was, I think it was Jeremy Bullmore, said, you know, a brand is made not just by the people who buy it, but also by the people who know about it. So, you know, my example is if I say to you Rolls-Royce, I would never in a million years buy a Rolls-Royce, but I understand the value it has to the people who buy it, and therefore I've added to its value because I know it. They know that I know, and I know that they know that I know. That's why fame is under fundamentally unimportant. And marketing directors do not understand that, and that's why they're not very good at their job. Right. Okay. Hopefully, we've got, we got a few listening who will be paying attention. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come and I hope we'll, so. we'll come, um, knock down my door. Now, John, I've got, I, I realize I haven't got too much longer with you, but I've got a lot of questions. We have at least uh, three listeners to the podcast, and they've all sent Oh, fantastic. The Holy Trinity. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll, we'll try and go through them very quickly. Ben Simmons Gooding, you probably remember his dad, Anthony Simmons Gooding. I do indeed. Wonderful man. Uh, ben, uh, ben was a seat when I was in London at YNR, and he said, he asks, uh, what was the best agency of the last three decades, I think, apart from BBH? <laughs> you just answered that. Yeah, good. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh well, yeah, that's, that's unfair. Right. Let's exclude, let's exclude BBH from that. I, I think you have to go, it will be a toss-up between, in the UK, that is, I'm talking the UK. Yeah. I mean, Wyden and Kennedy are just phenomenal, and I think are a fantastic agency, but I'm looking at just the UK right now. I think you have to look at, you know, uh, Abbott Mead, um, and you have to look at BMP, which is now actually DDB, uh, now Adam and Eve DB. So it's gone through. So I think those two in the UK would be... Examples of outstanding advertising agencies. Yeah, in New Zealand, obviously, uh, Barnes, Captain Friends, Dentsu. Um, uh, ben also asked, was the BBH creative work so good because account management and planning did all the heavy lifting? <laughs> well, account, we always said, you know, the title of my book is called Turning Intelligence into Magic. And I, I always thought that what we had was brilliant strategic thinking. Uh, and fantastic creative execution, and we put those two things together. That was our big success, and that where we got both yeah. departments, both both parts of the advertising process is working brilliantly together. John Bartle, who was obviously my partner, was a brilliant, brilliant planner, and had that ability to think about strategic input 
that liberated the creative voice. And that's what we always talked about. It's there to liberate creativity. So it, it, no question that it did a fantastic job. So, so partly they're bad. Phil Newman says, can he have a job? And you don't know Phil, um, John. I don't. The answer is no. Uh, <laughs> I'm no Gert longer Kayot. a BBH, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want him. Uh, Gert Kayot says, uh, what do you think of Bob Hoffman, the ad contrarian? Uh, I think he's very good. I think I, I, I don't read a lot of what he's written, but every time I, I hear him speak, um, uh, I think he's absolutely fantastic. Um, and there's a man that I think every marketing director should read. And I've now, my brain, because I'm so, it's so late in the day, I, I've just yeah. um, forgotten. He writes in marketing, um, Mark... Mark, yeah, Rick, uh, Mark Ritson, Mark Ritson, that's yeah. it. They, every marketing director should read Mark Ritson, please. If you were, and he's professor of marketing. He's not a creative guy. He understands marketing. He speaks more sense than anybody I've ever read. Brilliant, man. Right. Excellent, thank you. Now, I've got, I've got three from uh, basically the same question from Murray, Luke, and Mike Watson, which is <coughs> what – Advice would you give to an agency coming out of uh, COVID-19? Um, well, what advice I would give them is I would say, I think the world is going to change. I think there's opportunity for change. I don't think we're going to go back to just what was before. And I'm, I'm not being over-romantic about this because, you know, the, the inertia is an amazing force in, in life. Um, but I do think for a young agency, there are going to be a huge number of brands looking at how can they be more relevant in a changed world? And they'll want to talk to partners who understand that, who understand that we're not going back to where we were, you know, a year ago and continue that kind of um, communication. So I think there's an opportunity for them to talk with a different voice to a different audience about a new kind of way of thinking. And I think that gives them a terrific opportunity. Yeah, there will, there will be a reset. Uh, it, what I guess is quite extraordinary is that almost the whole world is going through very similar experiences at all the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, somebody very cleverly said there's, there's going to be uh, before Coronas BC and after Coronas AC. Um, and I, I do think that will be the case, that people will talk about BC AC. Um, and, uh, and I think if you're in that AC world and you're looking at the future and you're looking at how brands should be contributing it isn't just about making money. Money, nothing wrong with money. Money's important. But I always say, you know, money has a voice. It doesn't have a soul. It's important. But remember, a brand has got to contribute more than just make money. And I think that is the way the new world has got to go. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, Ryan Jordan wants to know, what is the best idea that you've had that hasn't been bought? <laughs> Well, far too many. I never, you know, I never really dwell on ideas that weren't bought. I, I spent far too much time working on the ideas that were bought. That kind of, you know, you're, you're dwelling on, in a sense, failure. And, I, and I've always said I've learned nothing from failure. I don't, I don't, you know, when people say to me, do you learn from your mistakes? I say absolutely not. Not one thing. I mean, when you're yeah. doing any kind of work as a creative person, you're trying to break borders, trying to break barriers, you're trying to do something different, you're trying to make something work that hasn't worked before, and sometimes that's going to fail. So what are you going to do? You're going to go, oh, I shouldn't do that again? You just have to put it in the past and move forward. So I don't never dwell on failure. Look at your success <laughs> and move on from that. I have to say, you have a great positivity, uh, John. Hopefully some of that will rub off on me, but... Um We'll see how we go. Uh, uh, Toby Talbot, uh, uh, a typically vacuous question from Toby, who wants to know, where did you get your uh, fantastic seersucker suit, which you wore when he interviewed you at Sarches in New Zealand a couple of months ago? Ah, that was very good. Yes, I got that. A very, very interesting brand called, brand called Allabar Brown. Um, they're a UK um, they make sort of sort of swimwear and sportswear. All of our brown. They've just been bought, I think, by LVMH. So that might be. Although oh, actually, that's the end of it. Well, no, actually, quite interesting. Fashion brands are quite good at understanding they've got a they've got a kind of um, uh, a value there and know how to how to sort of uh, extend it. But all of our brown. 
have a look. I don't think you can get them now, actually. They just made a few and that was it. Okay, well, you could try, Toby. Uh, Hugh McLeod wants to know, what were your reasons for selling such a large stake of BBH to Leo Burnett 30 years ago? I can think of a few. Um, yeah, that was it. That was so we could afford to expand um, uh, and use that money to go global. Uh, we needed a media partner to do that. Um, and we weren't going to, if we were going to do that, we, we weren't going to just give the media the business that we had. We wanted them to pay for it and also for us to fund our expansion. That's why we did it. Yeah. But we only sold 49% and made them pay 100%. So it was a great deal for us. Brad wants to know, do you think the industry's obsession with purpose-driven advertising is coming from clients or agencies? Or is it because it's awarded? Or is it meeting a genuine demand for this sort of work for the consumer? Or are we in a bullshit bubble that will eventually burst? You can work out he's an art director. It's rather a long-winded question. <laughs> well, I th- I do, actually, I do think it's a very interesting question. You know, people often say to me about a company's CSR, what's your CSR policy? And I, I often say, why don't you make making a better product a, your CSR policy? In other words, look to what you're doing and then advertise that. I think there is a great danger where looking at a lot of whitewash or greenwash, I think it's called, isn't it? Yeah. Where people are adopting a kind of... Um, uh, attitude rather than, you know, not looking at the product they're making, seeing if it's recyclable, seeing if it can do less damage to the planet, where is it coming from, who's making it, doing all those, getting all those things right, and then going out and telling the world you're wonderful. I think put your own house in order, then advertise it. But I, I do worry slightly that we are kind of, it's a way of winning an award. You know, there was a yeah. great funny ad done some 15, 20 years ago by an Australian agency who, who did a spoof of David Abbott, the wonderful writer, had number, won a number of awards for his work for the RSPCA. And they did an ad which said, here's my dead dog, where's my award? And um, yeah. it sort of summed up the kind of, all oh, you know, um, you know, the attitude of the industry at that moment. But you'll get that sort of thing going on. But I, I you know, I, I do think we, we should be doing work that shows it works and that way we show how creativity can succeed john thank you so much um for your time the the, the um, uh, you. uh, it, it, it was great to catch up i'm glad that um that you're going well in london and you know i hope you and yours get through all this and uh, come out well on the other side and See you in New Zealand in February, hopefully. Absolutely, Paul. Whereabouts are you? You're in. I, I, I'm in our north. Hang on, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna move this camera around. That's where I am. Oh, you, well, you can just bugger off. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Great. That, that's <laughs> um, um, that's uh, Kowau Island that you can see in the background there. Just an hour north of Auckland. Wonderful. Well, it looks fantastic. I have to go. Lovely talking to you. A real, real pleasure. Hope it works. Thanks for all the questions, and uh, I hope they were of value. Paul, brilliant. Have a great yeah, time. Absolutely, well. all right. Thanks, John. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Stay strong. Cheers. Bye. Thank you to um, Shane, Jonathan, Cole, Vanessa, and the guys at Franklin Road. Thank you, them, and thank you to the listeners because we're still, I think, the number one. Uh, podcast featuring me in the whole of New Zealand which is a start that's all from me, bye for now, thank you on the farewell drive we found a hundred ways that our hands fit together Centrifugal force pulls us apart as we spin. Please forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound The anxious toss and turn Thoughts come not as single spies But in battalions
hands while the wicked sleep sound. Forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound, I want the anxious toss and turn. Thoughts come not as single spies, but in battalions. While the wicked sleep sound, I want the anxious toss and turn. The anxious toss and turn. 